The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 73 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. This cancer story looks different for everyone. Regardless of whether we have the same cancer or a different cancer, there are similarities, but there are differences. So even when the approaches are similar, we all respond differently. We have different emotional responses. We have different physical responses to our treatments, to our surgeries, all the things. It's really a unique experience for each of us. Yet, we can really all benefit from the guidance of a neutral third party, especially when we're figuring it all out in the beginning, when you're drinking from that fire hose of information. So I'm really excited to be talking with Stacey Tignano today. She's a breast cancer survivor and cancer patient advocate, and I'm looking forward to her sharing her story with you today. Welcome, Stacey. I am so excited that we are doing this today. Um, so you and I met in a Masters of Public Health program, I think it was our epidemiology class last quarter, and we've been wanting to have this conversation. So I'm really looking forward to you sharing your breast cancer story today. So welcome. Thank you for having me. And I only wish that we were sharing a cup of coffee in person um, after having survived Epi. Yes. <laughs> um so breast cancer, um, I, like most people probably in the U.S., um, didn't think too much of breast cancer before 2013. Um, I associated it with the color pink. I associated it with things like Race for the Cure. Um, I associated it with older women because the average age of diagnosis is, is 62. And so in January of 2013, I received a phone call from my mother. Uh, in the evening. And I picked up and she said, Stacy, I have breast cancer. It was shocking. It was kind of earth shaking. Um, at the same time, I had a, a younger friend um, who was uh, dealing with metastatic lung cancer. Um, and so suddenly cancer was in these multiple parts of my life. Uh, I was working at the time in um, the, the tech space. I was working for, for a large um, technology company in the Silicon Valley. Um, I had uh, a husband and, and two uh, children. My, my kids were 10 and 11 at the time. And so I decided that I needed to help my mother um, get through what at the time I was using the terminology battle, um, which, which I think is pretty common terminology. So I took a leave of absence from my job and I started to fly back and forth between you know, where I live in, in Northern California to where she um, lived in San Antonio, Texas, and started to realize that, you know, caregiving, it takes a, it takes a lot of different muscles. Um, but one of the muscles that she actually needed was, was an advocate muscle, um, this woman who had raised me, who had um, taught me to kind of stand up for myself and advocate for myself in all of these different venues um, was now, um, she was scared. Um, she, she had an opinion and she had 
a plan, but she couldn't, she didn't feel like she could articulate that to her care team. Um, and, and then that was shocking to me. It was, it was, um, it was frightening, um, even as an adult, you know, to see your, your mom kind of be in this position. So again, I was flying back and forth, um, from, from Northern California to, to Texas. And, um, I had just gotten back in May of, of 2013 and I went in for what was to be my baseline mammogram. And at that baseline mammogram, never having had a mammogram before, I took a bunch of, bunch of pictures. Um, and then the woman said, uh, the radiologist would like to see you. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. Like full, full service. I get to see my images. This is great. And as soon as I walk into this dark room, um, this radiologist says, so it's probably nothing but, and shows me these, these little bright spots, um, you know, on the, on the screen. And I remember that, that feeling of like, oh, this is, this is not what I expected. And I remember when he said, there's a very small chance that this could be cancer. And I remember my ears kind of getting hot and kind of being like, oh, my husband was traveling at the time. And so I went home and um, the phone rang immediately and it was the hospital and they were calling to schedule a biopsy. And I was smart enough to know that, well, normally, you know, this type of turnaround doesn't happen. So I was a little bit on edge. Um, and at the same time, I'm like, I just turned 40. Like there's, there's no way this is cancer. This is, this is, would be highly unusual. And at the same time, you know, my, my mom is going through treatment. And so I know that, you know, now there's breast cancer in my family. Um, just a few days later, I had what's known as an excisional biopsy. So my, my breasts were small. Um, and the, um, area of concern was deep enough against my chest that there wasn't a way that they could do the, the typical fine needle aspiration. Um, so I went into, to a day surgery and I, they did effectively a lumpectomy to take out the area of concern. And they said, we'll call you in seven days with the, with the pathology. And so seven days later, I am at a memorial for a friend's mother and I get a phone call and I kind of step out and, um, I'm whispering and it's my surgeon. And she says, um, are you okay? Because I'm, I'm, I'm teary. I'm crying. We've, we've just lost this, this kind of pillar of our community. And I said, I'm fine. I said, are you, are you calling to tell me that everything's fine? And she said, I'm actually calling to tell you, um, that we found some things and you're going to need an additional surgery and I will make an appointment for you in oncology. And I just remember thinking this can't be, this can't be real. So again, we, and you know, less than a week later, just days later, um, I have an appointment in oncology and they do what I think is fairly typical at most institutions. The, the patient actually sits in a room and then they rotate, um, the care providers, you know, to you. So the first person I talked to was the head of, uh, surgery and he came in and he had said, um, I, I had heard that my pathology was, was, was DCIS, stage zero cancer. And so that doing my research made me feel better. And I thought, okay, we're, it's already out anyway. They scoop the whole thing out. We'll, we'll be done. Cause really, I don't have time for this. Like my mom is actually going through real cancer treatment. And, um, so when he walked in and said, 
those days, the tumor board met and we've all decided that the best course of, of treatment for you is um, a left mastectomy, uh, sentinel load biopsy, chemotherapy and radiation and, and anti-estrogen therapy. And I just sat there and I was like, what do you mean? I like, I, I, I stayed your DCI. I'd like, what do you mean? This is ridiculous. And he explained that while the pathology um, showed DCIS that, you know, the pathologist said, I'm willing to bet my career that, that there's uh, an invasive tumor in here. A lot of push pull. I'm like, I can't have surgery now. I have to fly back to Texas. You know, there's this, this whole thing kind of going on. And um, to his credit, he actually said, okay, fine. You know, why don't we do this? Why don't you schedule the, uh, sentinel node biopsy. And if we find something, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead with the mastectomy. And so I said, okay. And now I felt like somebody was on my side. Somebody heard me, somebody was on my team, which I would later learn is like the key for me is to feel heard. And for um, so many of us. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And so days later, I get this call from a different surgeon, um, who has been recommended to me. And she says, Stace, I have to ask you. She's like, why are we just doing this sentinel node biopsy? Why aren't we doing the whole damn thing? And I'm like, well, because my mom's going through treatment. And she's like, okay. She goes, I'm happy to do it. She said, but the reality is you're young. Young, you know, breast cancer tends to be a little bit more aggressive. I would get it all out. And she left me with that. Um, so I called her back and I was like, all right, do the whole damn thing. Um, but build me another, build me another breast while you're in there. And unfortunately, they said, the system said the system, the institution said that they, they couldn't do that. Knowing what I know now, I wish I would have pushed a little bit harder, but, um, there was a lot of fear and consternation. And they said, let's, you know, make sure that, um, you know, we, we deal with cancer first and then we'll deal with reconstruction. So I had my, um, mastectomy. Um, they did find two invasive tumors and, um, they did find just a couple of cancer cells in, in one of the two lymph nodes that they took. Um, my first, medical oncologist um, recommended a round of chemotherapy. And I said, I didn't want chemotherapy. What I wanted was at the time, something that, that wasn't um, standard of care, which was called the Oncotype DX testing. It had been approved, um, but it was primarily being used in postmenopausal women. And because I was young, they were concerned that, you know, that it, it would not be um, as indicative as, as, it, as, it, as it could be. For me. Uh, so I fired my first oncologist and I found a new one who was going to offer me the Oncotype test. Um, and to her credit, she said, Stace, what, what's the number? Like, what number are we going to agree on that if it comes back higher, you are going to go through chemotherapy? And I said, well, you know, the test says 17, you know, and above is, is intermediate. I said, so if I'm above, you know, 17, then I will, I will do chemotherapy. And, and by the way, my lucky number is 16. So I'm sure it's going to come back under her. <laughs> um, so I, and she said, she goes, well, you know, at this point we're recommending 10 and under or 10 and over, you know, for, for premenopausal women. Um, I got a 13 best score ever, um, <laughs> made the choice to not do chemo. And then I talked to the radiation oncologist and this time, you know, I'd been in the system, you know, long enough that I knew how to search PubMed. And so I had a stack of um, research documents talking about the, the cons. I only pulled the stuff I wanted to read. The of cons. Course. 
of radiation um, on the left side um, after a full mastectomy um, and the fact that the cardiac damage, even with the newer techniques, um, could be probably more significant than the than the benefit of of um, you know killing any additional cancer. Um, and I knew I didn't want my you know my axilla, um, my left side axilla radiated. So I did agree to go on the tamoxifen. Um, <laughs> a much longer story than we have time for. I had some some very um, interesting side effects. My, all my, uh, my toenails started disconnecting and, and falling off, which normally people say that's a chemo thing. Well, I didn't have chemo. So I learned how to report things to the FDA as an individual. That was a big learning experience. And then I had something called trigeminal neuralgia. So the left side of my face would just go numb and I would think I was having a stroke. Um, but it was just some weird side effect that I had, um, with tamoxifen. So I stayed on tamoxifen for four years, one month, and nine days until um, I was officially diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, caused by the tamoxifen. And at that point, you kind of weigh your your uh, choices. And, you know, if cancer comes back, we can treat it, um, but I can't live without a liver. And so I got rid of my tamoxifen. <laughs> and now I am flying without a net. I'm flying without a net and I'm flying within the, um, the cancer advocacy community because it, it was definitely a community that was incredibly supportive of me and kind of my non-traditional carve your own path um, through cancer. So, and my mother is doing well. She is, um, she is also doing well. And uh, hopefully I will just remain a, you know, knocking on wood now, cancer survivor. <laughs> thriver. That's excellent. I want to talk more. I definitely want to talk more about the reporting to the FDA as an individual, because I also had challenges with tamoxifen. And that was one of the things that I learned. Um, I tend to be one of those people who, um, when we first went in, my husband said to the oncologist, just tell me the things that happen to less than 10% of the people. Because they'll happen to you. <laughs> because that's what's going to happen to her. Oh my gosh. Oh like, my gosh. Just tell us the ridiculous <laughs> side effects that you never see, but they say will happen or could happen. And those are the ones that are going to happen. And I did have a lot. One of the things I learned in my research, uh, specifically regarding tamoxifen, was that less than 50% of the people who start tamoxifen actually make it past two years. Absolutely. And if you look at the data, um, two and it's years, quite good. Two, two years is actually a, a, a good course. Yes. Um, and there's some great research going on in um, Italy um, talking about the lower dose, just, you know, bigger perspective, the way that drugs are approved in this country, we go to the maximum tolerated dose where people actually get sick because of the treatment, and then we back it off. And so if you think about the diversity of individuals and the diversity of, of needs and the diversity of metabolisms, we are giving everybody, we're prescribing everybody a standard of care just short of the maximum tolerated dose. And I don't know about you, you know, I started, you know, this whole process at, you know, 120 pounds. 
And so for me, 120 pounds to get the same as, you know, a woman who's prescribed who, who might be 180 pounds, who, by the way, men get breast cancer too, you know, a man who is at, you know, potentially 220 pounds, it just doesn't make sense, right? The, the, right. the math, and you and I both know we love math, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So. Yeah, it's, um, it's really quite an interesting thing. I made it about a year and a half. Um, and I was so, my body was so overwhelmed by the tamoxifen that I finally just had to say, I was very much like you, like, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. And when it came to tamoxifen, I was sort of on the fence. Like if it wasn't going to affect my quality of life, I was okay with doing it, but it was really impacting my quality of life. But I was still like, I wasn't getting good reasons why I needed to do it, but I also wasn't getting, it wasn't clear. The not doing it wasn't clear either. So I felt like I was in this almost like no man's land where I was like, why am I struggling just saying no? I think for me, because I had kind of gone against the grain, because again, this was 2013. And so all of the the newer Taylor X results on on the Oncotype DX had not been published yet. Right. Um, So my kind of rejecting chemotherapy upset the apple cart enough uh, that I knew I needed to do something. I, I, I Yeah. I felt like I needed to do something. And again, you know, my kids were, my daughter turned 12 between January when my mom was diagnosed. And then, you know, when I was diagnosed in May, so my kids were 10 and 12. Um, And I made a deal, you know, with the universe that, you know, I just wanted to see them graduate from high school, which, you know, was, 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 I just can't even explain. I mean, it just like crushed my heart to be like, okay, that will be good enough you know, that will be good enough. And both of my kids, um, my son started his, my younger one um, started his, his freshman year of college last year. So I renegotiated everything. (laughs) I'm like, thank you universe made that milestone. I am now uh, renegotiating everything, but um, it, it really was challenging to reject part of a standard of care. Yeah. And then I, I felt like I, I needed to at least stand up at the end of all of this and be like, I, I did everything I could. And, and by everything I could, you know, I know my body. I take, I take child's versions of everything, you know, yeah. I don't. And so chemo, I firmly believe just would have taken me out. Just, I would have been the one with the, you know, permanent neuropathy. I would have been the one with, you know, neutropenia all the way through. Um, so I didn't regret that. But I did feel tethered to, you know, the the anti-estrogen treatment. And honestly, I thought I was being pretty savvy. I'm like, it's just a tiny little pill. What the hell is 20 milligrams going to do to me? It did a lot. It did a lot. It did a lot. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting when we do kind of ask a lot of questions and when we really educate ourselves on what's going on. And then we do have that ability to like, push back like I had pushed back on radiation and for a lot of the same reasons that you had said like left side um at, my body produces a lot of scar tissue I already had lymphedema and axillary cording I was like you're telling and it wasn't the standard of care yeah it yeah. was a recommendation it wasn't a required part of the standard of care it went along with 
because of your age. And you probably heard the same. Like I heard a lot of because of your age. And I was like, you're telling me, you know, finger and forefinger and thumb, a centimeter, you know, a smidgen apart, the benefits are this big and you're putting them an inch apart saying the risks are this big. Why, why are you pushing me down this path? Well, and the other thing, I don't know if, if you felt this, again, going back to math and statistics. <laughs> um, <laughs> Our favorite subject. <laughs> they, there was all of this about percentages. Well, there's a 50% this. And, if it, and what they don't clearly explain to you is when they say um, the, the benefit, you know, tamoxifen reduces your risk by 50%. They don't mean absolute. They mean relative. They mean you have a very small percent you know, chance of recurrence or, or metastases, and it can reduce that by 50%. Well, 50% of 9% or 50% of 2%, you know, depending on, on your staging, that's a different ballgame. And the actual percentage in the literature is 1.35%. And I yeah. said to my nurse, when the nurse called me, when I finally, I it turned out I was allergic to tamoxifen. And when the nurse called me, I said, she said, we really need you to go back on the tamoxifen. And I said, I really need you to find out if there's gluten in the tamoxifen. (laughs) And then if you tell me no, then I'll go back on it. Maybe. But my body is like, this is unsustainable. I cannot continue this for another second. And she's like, well, we really need you to. And I said, well, tell me this. 1.35% of all the people in the tamoxifen studies had a recurrence. That's pretty consistent across the studies that I'm seeing. Is is that is that the number that we're talking about? Then it's 44% of those people are not having a recurrence. Yeah. And yeah. she was like, well, we don't want you to be the 1.35. I said, no, you want to kill me with this medication. <laughs> like this medication, I was I was full of fluid. Like it was taxing oh. my heart. It was, it caused me to have uh, worse, like ongoing lymphedema. My lymphedema is, you know, worse as a result. I was in a very low grade, um, low stage, easy maintenance. And now I'm in like a daily maintenance. So I was like, no, 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 we're done. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard too, though, because when I talk to, I'm probably like you, you know, anybody in the community gets a diagnosis of any type of cancer and, and, you know, they, they call me and, and I, and I love that. I love that. I've, I've now been in this space long enough and, and my advocacy work is, is much broader than breast cancer. Um, so I, I love being the, the kind of the worm voice on the other end of the line that can connect yeah. them with information and resources and things like that. And so it's very hard. I, I find that, um, I share my story, the whole story less and less as I go further along. Because some people have no problem with tamoxifen. Some people have no problem with chemo. Some people have no problem with radiation. And so I don't ever want to scare anybody. And at the same time, the part of my story that I I do want to perpetuate and that I do want to share is that you are the person in the center of the circle. And any standard of care, any protocol that is meant to, you know, meet the needs of you know, 1.7 million people are diagnosed with cancer in this country every year. And that number just keeps going. And after COVID, it's probably going to, you know, jump up because we, you know, we didn't, we didn't get some good screenings in last year. Yeah. But it's not possible. You can't 
personalized care that way. And so, you know, understand what your goals are. And there are goals of treatment, which are pretty consistent, especially in early stage cancers. It's yes. to get rid of cancer, right? Yes. But understand what your goals are beyond that. What are your what are your goals in life? Like I said, I want to see my kids graduate from high school. You know, I've met women who are diagnosed in their 70s and they're like, yeah, I don't need another 20 years, but I want to have the physical ability to dance at my granddaughter's wedding. Well, yes. that's a different course of treatment than, you know, hey, let me pump you full of every drug and let me, you know. So I think, again, I share less and less about the details of my story and especially less about kind of some of the horror moments. It's fun to talk with you about it because, you know, knock on wood again, you're, you're out of, out of that. But, right. but really the part that if you want to be, you can be in charge and not everybody wants to be right. Some That's, people say, yes. I, I'm abdicating those decisions. I'm either giving them to my doctor or I'm giving them to my spouse or some other, you know, care provider, um, care partner. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, a and, and this is not just cancer, right? This is, this is any, you know, serious illness, any, you know, anytime you're engaging with the healthcare system that you have a voice and that voice is important. Yeah. Um, so, so feel free to use it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode on where I talked about the law, some universal laws, the law of choice and the law of sacrifice, right? Like for every choice that we make, where we're choosing something for our highest good, whatever that is for us, like we all get to choose our, our choices. And that may mean that we are, you know, the word sacrifice has may have a negative connotation, but really it's the letting go of something that's not serving us to choose something that is going to better serve us. And we have those choices. So that is, and everybody has, has the ability to say, this seems like a right choice for me, or this is not seeming like a right choice for yeah. me, or, and I, think, I don't want I, your opinion about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it's hard because by and large, that's true. Um, one of the other things that I've learned being in the advocacy space is that sometimes choice is, is easier. Choice is easier if you have a care team that, you know, respects you. A choice is easier yeah. if you have somebody to pick up the slack at home. Um, yes. the inequities in our healthcare system are insane. Yes. Um, black women are 40% more likely to die from the same breast cancer diagnosis that a, that a woman gets. And, and there's multiple reasons for that. Um, there was a study that came out in 2016 talking about Herceptin, which has been an approved drug for, you know, over 20 years. There's it's, it's, um, the, you know, the patent has fallen off the, fallen off the other side. Um, but, but women with her two positive disease, black women with her two positive disease, not being offered Herceptin, it's standard of care. It is the standard of care. I'm so, HER2 positive and I, that was a foregone conclusion. Nothing else was known about right. my treatment, yep. but all my, my entire team was like, oh, you'll get Herceptin. Yep. Yep. Maybe nothing so, else, but definitely that. Yeah. I mean, that is the standard of care. So it's, so it's, it's ridiculous. Like when you start to kind of peel back the onion, and, you know, another thing that, that um, I remember, you know, learning about through, through actual patients, not even through, you know, through literature um, was depending on your insurance 
And, yes. and so the, you know, reimbursement model and, and copayment model, um, there were individuals who were neutropenic who rather than being given uh, a, a, neutro- a neuprogen, you know, uh, rather than being given something to kind of bump up their, their labs and their, and their white cell count, they were just being told that they couldn't get chemo. So they'd have to wait. And yeah. so again, you know, we've made so much progress in how we treat cancer. And if you look at it at a very macro level, you know, people are surviving longer. Their quality of life in, in a lot of cases, a lot of these chemos have become less toxic. We've gone, done, gone to targeted therapies as opposed to just these massive, you know, cytotoxic therapies. Yeah. And at the same time, when you look at it at the micro level, there are huge pockets of people that, you know, run along minority, racial minority lines that run along socioeconomic lines that don't have access. And then, and then the rural population, right? We've got, you know, 80% of individuals diagnosed in the U.S. are, are treated at community, um, at community centers. And yeah. so, you know, we hear a lot about MD Anderson. We hear a lot about Memorial Sloan Kettering. We hear, you know, a lot about Moffitt Cancer Center. And yet the majority of people have access to only what's available in their community. Right. So, and I think that's, you know, when I, when I think about advocacy work, I, I'm not very good at like picking a lane and staying in it <laughs> because there's so much to do, right? There's the, the patient advocacy, there's the NF1 work, there's the, there's the community level work, there's the research advocacy, right? How yeah. do we design research so that it is more person focused and so that it is more accessible so that we are uh, researching things that are more relevant to the community? Because yes. honestly, if I have to read one more like yoga is helpful study. I, I'm I'm gonna well I've I've been saying this for years, so I'm probably not gonna <laughs> break something, but <laughs> but we know that. So let's incorporate what we know into standard of care. Let's give people right. access to exercise and yoga and stop spending a ton of money researching that so we can research something something else. Yeah. Um so we're gonna take a quick break and when we get back. We're actually going to talk more about uh, about these topics. So stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard awful or daunting and make it something fun maybe even a little social safely of course the important thing is that you want to get started and you're happy to show up for yourself and then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it ready to reimagine exercise you can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a copy chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Stacy, and we have been having a great conversation. And as always, the time just flies by. And especially, um, I call in a lot of peeps that are, you know, read the literature and are looking at the science and... Um, so then we go down that rabbit hole, um, which can be really, <laughs> can be like a very cavernous place to be, right? Like there's a lot of research and stuff. So I wanted to just circle back on a, on a couple of things from, uh, the story as she was sharing it. 
I, I kind of chuckled to myself when, when she was getting the information and was like, I don't have time for this. This, my mother is having the real cancer treatment. And I think we were talking off air about how we feel like that's really common for women to be like, Oh, I'm, I'm caretaking for, I'm taking care of someone else. Like there could be something do, going man. on with me. <laughs> I've got stuff to do. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a care partner, you know, to my mom. Um, I'm a wife. Right. And, and, you know, kind of this co-head of household. Um, But I think the biggest piece for me was, was really the, the kids, you know, I didn't want to upset their apple cart. Um, Again, we had, you know, a friend who was, who was dying of metastatic lung cancer. And so the association for them was like, cancer is bad Momo. Um, and yeah. it is, but it's also, you know, not, not always, um, something that's going to take your life, you know, quickly. Our experience and perspective are impact our response. So, so very much. Yeah. Um, my yeah. hope is that as we, as we go forward and there's more treatments and we do. I mean, the survivorship community is just growing exponentially, which is in part due to better treatment, early staging, all those things. And hopefully it'll, it'll help to soften our initial reactions. Because I think often the initial reactions for people are, can be so severe and the, the patient who's having to share that information is then having to navigate what to do with those reactions. <laughs> well, yeah, right. We used to call it, you know, we had the, we had the, the you know, the, the people who were going to be there. And then we had this whole friend group that I love them. I love them. I love them. I love them. But we called them the whalers, right? It was like, oh, and I'm like, I don't need that. Sh- I don't need that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So, so that was, that was really, really, really challenging. I want to, I want to circle back to, you know, what you were talking about, about, you know, better treatments and, and I too want that. Um, but really, I would love for research to partner more closely with how we can reduce the risk. Yes. Um, and again, you know, we met in public health. So, you know, you've got all of these classes about, you know, environment and policy and all of these things. And, you know, it's astounding to me because there is so much in our world, in our environment, um, from a behavioral perspective, from an exposure perspective, that puts us at risk. And when I say this, I, you know, can't see my face, but I'm, I, I'm earnest. Cancer isn't anybody's fault. And I don't Absolutely. care if you're a, Absolutely. You know, and, and, but, but there are things that you can do to reduce the risk of ever getting a diagnosis of cancer. And so I would like those to be, kind of bubbled up to the top. I would like people to better understand how they can minimize the risk. And you know what? There's still going to be people that get cancer. I was, I had just completed a half marathon. I have always been height weight appropriate. Um, I had both of my kids before I turned 30. I breastfed them both. I ate a ton of blueberries, (laughs) you know, all of the things that they say, do this so you don't get breast cancer. Um, And sometimes bad stuff still happens. Yes. But, and like in your case, your mom has had breast cancer now, obviously at, a, at an older age than you were diagnosed. But my mom, a couple of years after my diagnosis, she had a DCIS. Her sister was diagnosed at 49. 
there's things that we know now, like long-term use of birth control back in the 90s. They thought that that was protective. Yeah. They didn't think that there was a downside. As long as you didn't have, you know, side effects from that, they didn't think there was a downside. Now, it is protective for ovarian cancer, but it is risk increasing for breast cancer. And the other interesting thing about that for for hormonally positive breast cancer, so triple negative breast cancer, they're they're not seeing any any association. But the other interesting thing to know is consistency, right? They're, They're saying that if you were on it, off it, on it, off it, on it, off it, that actually raises your risk as opposed to just being on birth control and, and consistent. One of the most shocking pieces of, of research for me was presented a couple of years ago at a, a meeting called ASBRS, and it's the American Society of Breast Surgeons. And what they showed, there's a lot of conversation around obesity and cancer. Yeah. Turns out that obesity literally obesity premenopausally is protective against breast cancer obesity postmenopausally is a an increased risk which again complete paradigm shift so so again right. bringing this to my person you know i've my bmi's been low all my life yeah. did did being you know thin in my premenopausally increase my risk according to this study you know it absolutely could have the other thing that we're seeing, and I'm, I'm involved in some research um, with, a, with a major cancer center, and we're looking at BMI and treatment. And there are studies out there that, that, that show that serious side effects to chemotherapy are, um, are exacerbated or elevated in individuals with very high BMIs. And, and it kind of Sits in sits in the fat potentially and and, yes. and continues to, to to do things, but what they're looking at is if we were to help people metabolize, um, you know that that treatment could it could it help could it could it make it more effective? Um, so there's a ton of studies, and the reality is we're not all built the same. We don't all even if you're the same height, the same weight, the same you know. Yeah. You don't necessarily metabolize things the same way, right? Your environment is the same. The way that you um, internalize or project stress isn't the same. And and we know that, you know, the body's response to stress is this inflammation. And so we know that inflammation can, you know, be, be, um, can promote a healthy environment for cancer, not for, you know, for ourselves. So it's, it's fascinating. And I think that one of the characteristics that I noticed in everybody that I've met who's diagnosed with any type of cancer, um, and it, and it makes, it honestly makes me weepy because I remember being there. It's like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? And the answer is it's not your fault. Yes. Um, And I tell every single person it is not your fault. And the reality is that Nine and a half times out of 10, especially when it comes to breast cancer, we won't know. Like we, unless you have a genetic marker or we, we won't know. Like that's, uh, I gotta, I gotta tell you, Jennifer, I'm gonna, I gotta call BS on your nine and a half times out of 10 because you and I, you know, are in statistics together. <laughs> yes, Show me how I'm you prove that. What is your, class. what is your null <laughs> hypothesis on that one? <laughs> 
Sorry, guys. It's yeah, it's <laughs> biostats after many, many, many years outside of school is a little challenging, as was epidemiology. <laughs> yes, and the two are starting to meet now. Yeah. Um, so actually, that brings me around to the last topic that I want to talk about. You had talked about reporting to the FDA, and this was actually something that I learned about it as well, mostly because I'm here outside of Washington, D.C., And I happened to do some work with a local free clinic and I had donated a package of sessions and a pharmacist who works for the FDA had purchased that auction item. And she actually reads the submissions that people write in regarding drugs. And based on the side effects and things that she sees in submissions from the public, it can change those leaflets that you get with your medication. So she had actually told me how to do that and what that process looked like. So I would love for you to share a little bit about that as well. Yeah, this was something I learned about um, when I think I, I mentioned to you, I don't know if I mentioned in this in this particular podcast, um, you know, I didn't take chemotherapy. And so when my big toenail popped off and I said, my toenail popped off, it, 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 it's got to be tamoxifen. My oncologist was like, no, 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 no. That's not a, that's not a side effect. But one of, one of the communities that I latched onto very, very quickly was, um, was the Twitter community. Um, and I know that might sound weird to some people who uh, have different experiences with social media, but, you know, as a younger woman, um, as a woman with two kids, I didn't find my people in a support group. I I went to support groups. Um, I was 20 years younger than, you know, the youngest person in the room. Um, And they were all talking about, you know, their grandkids. And, and, and so I leaned into the Twitter community um, and, and really now have this huge network, you know, global network of, of of people that I consider friends, you know, we've, we've, we've now met in person. Anyway, I, I reached out, um, you know, through through Twitter, and I I was like, has anybody ever had this? And they were like, yeah, you know, I was getting this, you know, I'm I'm air quoting anecdotal, you know, stories, right? Um, and me being the hack researcher that I was back then, um, I did what any other hack researcher would do is I, I built a, a a Google survey <laughs> and I sent it out um, through my blog, and I I wanted to know if anybody had had no chemotherapy but had had toenails pop off or fingernails. And within seven days, there were 11 people that said, yep, that, that was me. So I took this to my oncologist and she's like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Still probably not related. It could be a fungus. And I'm like, really? Like seven people? Like that seems like, you know, rare maybe, but. I was told <laughs> that you can find anything on Google. <laughs> <laughs> so I took my happy little, you know, information and I started searching around, you know, for, for, you know, whether they call them black box warnings, you know, the, the, the big sheet that says all this bad stuff can happen. And I didn't find it anywhere on there. And so I did get to the FDA um, on the website and there is a place called consumer reporting. Um, and so if you have a side effect that is not part of the, the protocol, or even if it is, and you just want to share, Hey, there's one more, um, you can submit um, that that online. Um, and then I promptly went to all of those other, you know, people that that had had similar issues. And I said, Hey, did you know you could do this? And then that became kind of, you know, my my thing for a while, people would talk about, 
there was the side effect. They didn't feel heard by their oncologist or their care team. And so I would just send them the link. And I'm like, you know, you are, are able to report this. The other thing that you can do is you can, um, you know, within your care team and within your um, health record, you can go to your oncologist or, or to your primary care provider, whoever you're seeing at the time, and you can say, hey, I think this, and I think this is a side effect, and I would like you to put it in my chart. Um, they are also, you know, required to, to report issues. Um, verdict's still out on, on, you know, whether or not they all do, but um, yes. this is kind of the, the only way. For people who aren't familiar, that that sheet that gets sent out with all of your medication, that sheet is actually created and designed during the clinical trial process. And so when people are um, were on, are on this drug and they report side effects, all of that gets documented. And then that goes into, um, you know, what is considered the, the risk profile of the, of the, or the side effect profile of the drug. But if you think about the length of these studies, you know, from inception to approval, sometimes there's not enough time or again, all bodies created differently. They might not have had somebody who experienced that or somebody experienced it, didn't think it was related and so didn't share it. So, right. Or just didn't get documented as, as relevant. So yeah, such great information as always the time zooms by. I know that we have so many more things that we can talk about. I'll have to have you back on a different day and uh, we can tackle some more of these items. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you. Cheers. That concludes this week's episode. I would love to connect with you over in my Facebook group. Surviving is just the beginning. There you'll find a community of past guests and group members who know what this journey is like. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone. There's a community of people with similar and diverse experiences waiting to meet you because surviving really is just the beginning. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Music